This is Encounters, a dialogue that brings you multifaceted life stories you don't want to miss. I was always interested in humor anyway, but I was also desperately trying to learn Chinese and mostly on my own. I was looking for something that was a little more realistic daily life patter or something that would challenge me a little bit and that was something real and not just a textbook fossilized a bit of language. And one day I discovered uh, Xiangsheng Crosstalk. I was very nervous at that when I did that. Before we went on, some producer or something said, you, you know that something like uh, 400 million people are going to watch this show. <laughs> what? 400 million? I almost have fainted. She suddenly held my arm, put her arm in mine, and said, no, what are you talking about? The night is still young. Oh, my goodness. And then suddenly I went, oh, oh. I misread the cues. <laughs> It's worth the effort because if you can speak good Chinese, it opens doors. It's so rewarding and it's a lifelong task. And that's one of the reasons I think I was attracted as well. I said, this is something I can spend my whole life doing and never get bored with it. Hello and welcome. I'm Manling in Beijing. My guest today is David Mosa, an American who has been living in Beijing for more than 30 years. He is a musician, a teacher, a fluent Mandarin speaker, and also a linguist. As a linguist, David believes that Chinese is one of the most difficult languages in the world. But by chance, he found a secret weapon which helped him to study the Chinese language and even led him to mount the most sought-after stage in China. What is that? Stay tuned. During these years, what happened to you personally? Well, I was doing a lot of different things. Uh, as you said, I was not only teaching, I was starting to get involved with uh, crosstalk, this uh, Chinese traditional humor form. I was also beginning to taking part in the very beginnings of the jazz music scene in Beijing. You had a degree in music, mm -hmm. so it's no wonder, little wonder about why you got yourself involved in it. Mm -hmm. And jazz was the, like even some of the folk songs, they came into China at the earlier years of China's reform and opening mm -hmm. up. It's something completely new. Yep. And you joined them, right? Mm -hmm. But why crosstalk? Okay, yeah, well, that's pretty easy to explain, actually. I was always interested in humor anyway, but I was also desperately trying to learn Chinese and mostly on my own. And back in the 80s, the sort of Chinese teaching materials and textbooks and things were pretty limited and primitive and mostly boring. <laughs> I mean, really, really boring. And I was looking for something that was a little more realistic daily life patter or something that would challenge me a little bit. And that was something real and not just a textbook fossilized a bit of language. And one day I discovered uh, Xiangsheng Crosstalk. Someone had a cassette tape and was laughing at it. And I could tell it was uh, sounded a little bit like American stand-up comedy, but I couldn't understand any of it. And I said, what's this? And they said, it's Crosstalk. And he gave me some tapes. And so I said, okay, this is going to be a good, uh, I designed my own curriculum. I'm going to study these dialogues. And at the same time, I'm studying language. I can also study, yeah. study culture, humor. Mm -hmm. So there's mm -hmm. the 
opera tradition. There's there's a folk uh, peaking folk opera. opera. There's language, you know, puns and all sorts history, of things. History, culture, yes, and food and yeah, everything. Yeah, everything, dialects, everything is in mm-hmm, it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this was a, a natural thing for me to start studying. And of course, I happened to be at Peking University. A sort of a center of all sorts of folk studies. And, and I happened to meet someone in the Chinese department, a professor named Wang Jingshou, who was a expert in crosstalk and mm-hmm. these folk arts speaking. And uh, Is he the one who introduced Ding Guanquan for you? Yes. Wow, well, yes, I right. guess my guess is right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wang Laoshi was the one who had discovered uh, Canadian Mark Roosevelt's Da Shan, mm. who some people probably know who he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure most people know who he is. Mm-hmm. And so this Wang Jingshou was a scholar who studied this art form, but he also knew all these crosstalk uh, mm-hmm. masters, experts. So I started to study it, and I thought I would write a paper, an article on it, or a book. And so I asked uh, Professor Wang, you know, can I meet some of these crosstalk performers? And he said, oh, sure, they're all friends of mine. So I suddenly was interviewing famous crosstalk artists in my dorm room at Peking University, and I had no idea who they were, but these were some of the most famous people, TV personalities in China, mm-hmm. and they would come in, and, and the you know the maids on my floor would faint. They said, I can't believe who this famous person who's here. And I started to study with these people and learn a bit about the craft, and eventually this led to me being introduced by Wang Jiaoshu to Ding Wang Chan. Master Ding. Ding Wang Chan being one, a student of Hou Baolin, who was the crosstalk mm. master. And I started doing crosstalk on TV. Why CCTV Spring Festival Gala Show decided to invite foreigners to put on crosstalk on the stage? All of us had been on TV before because that was uh, sort of the heyday of foreigners on TV. Because after the Dashan phenomenon, a lot of people love to see foreigners on TV speaking good Chinese. And it's very funny for them in and of itself. Dashan, of course, was a super success. My first big uh, skit was, I think, in 1996, maybe or five, with Hou Baolin's son, Hou Yaohua. We were doing a, a skit, a xiaopian. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, I was very nervous at that when I did that. Before we went on, some producer or something said, you you know that something like uh, 400 million people are going to watch this show. <laughs> what? 400 million? I almost have fainted, but I got through it okay. <laughs> And since then, I got used to it. But the yeah, the, the Spring Festival Gala is, by the time everyone watches it, including the Chinese overseas, it's really watched by almost a billion people worldwide, which is very, very daunting. So they wanted to do a show, a skit with foreigners. But the basic idea was, here's these foreigners who love China, and they love Chinese, and they love... Um, so this love, actually, mm-hmm. is authentically felt in your heart, right? Of course, yeah. Three of you just met your better half here in China. And when did you come to know her? My wife? Yeah. A lot of people ask that question, and it's disappointing because there isn't really an interesting story. Not romantic? (laughs) Not so romantic. Your love with Chinese language and Chinese, like, crosstalk is romantic, but not your romantic life is not romantic at all. The story is just this. I went to a party, and there was a woman there who was a teacher, a history teacher, and we talked a little bit. He said, oh, that's interesting because we both enjoyed history. And, and so we exchanged phone numbers. He said, well, let's get together again and talk more history. And we did. And then that's the story. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it proves that you really are interested in academic things more than... Maybe that's the difference between you and no, Dashan. No, Is that no, so? no. I didn't no? mean that. I'm joking. Of course, I'm, yeah, of course okay. I have my romantic... All right! Don't, don't, know, don't think I'm a robot, but... Uh. No. <laughs> 
But I can tell you an interesting thing, and my wife isn't listening probably, so it doesn't matter. There was a little bit of a cross-cultural issue because we started, you know, dating, we, you know, eating meals together or something. And me as a foreigner, I was very sensitive to her sort of reaction to me, you know. And by my foreign standards, it seemed to me that she was a little bit just cool, not really totally engaged and didn't really talk that much. And I was, and so after a few dates, you know, I was sort of thinking, I just don't think she's too interested in me. Somehow I don't <laughs> feel the same kind of chemistry that you usually feel. Keep in mind, this is way back in, you know, 1994 or whenever it was. And so I had a cold that night and that this we finished at a certain date. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, and I was thinking, I think this is just probably not going to work. So I said, well, why don't we call tonight? I've kind of got a cold and I have to go to work tomorrow and everything. And, you know, we'll just get in touch later on. I was thinking, you know, this will probably be it. She suddenly held my arm, put her arm in mine and said, no, what are you talking about? The night is still young. Oh, my goodness. And then suddenly I went, oh. Oh, I misread the cues. (laughs) So that's the cultural differences, right? Yeah, there's a little cultural difference there. I was supposed to be the one, you know, being sort of very chasing her and being very active. And she's supposed to be there, you know, like a princess waiting for me to wait on her hand and foot and all this kind of stuff. And I was thinking in America, this should be like a reciprocal thing, right? That's interesting. That's interesting, right? Just now you mentioned you write a paper on Shasha, Mm. right? What sort of things you're writing about? Well, you introduced Shashan to I others? Did. Yeah. This, mine was the first, I think the first, uh, it was a thesis actually, uh, the first work in English that sort of comprehensively introduced the art of crosstalk, of Xiangsheng to Western audience. That, As far as I know, there was, there, and still I think to this day, there's no other book or, or substantial article that just deals with the history and the art. So I didn't have that much to go on back then, but uh, and I was working with Wang Jingshou, this professor who had written lots of books. Mm-hmm. So it's basically just an overview of the history and how the humor works and how the format works and how the humor is passed on and how the pieces are devised. They're very carefully worked out. One thing I like about Xiangsheng is the pieces, they're honed before a live audience. So the pieces that survive now, the traditional pieces, literally thousands of audiences have heard them and the performers begin to perfect the pieces, taking out the bits that don't get a laugh and putting in extra things that do get a laugh. So by the time they come down to us, they're very strong, actually. They work very well. Yeah, it's actually like um, the Western operatic, sort of uh, classical operatic mm-hmm. arios that can pass down from one generation right. to the other, and you can add something to it and take away something. But this is different from the stand-up comedies in the U.S. Major differences, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So do you compare these two looking like a quite similar sort of uh, genres of art. What are the differences? I interviewed Joe Wan here and he said there are major and huge differences between Xiangsheng and stand-up comedy. Mm -hmm. Do you realize that? Mm -hmm. Well, the biggest difference, I think, is that Xiangsheng routines tend to be two-person. So it's a team. Yeah. Now, we had that also in the United States and elsewhere. There are two-person comedy teams, but they're more rare. It's usually one person on the stage. And then Xiangsheng also has one person form. It's called Danko. Danko, yes. So in that sense, they're a little bit similar. But the biggest difference probably is that Xiangsheng pieces are not just a series of jokes that are kind of thrown together one after another that go from one topic to another, uh, which is a typical stand-up comedy. Xiangsheng pieces are a very tightly composed uh, Even piece. written beforehand, yeah. right? Well, it, back now it is, but in the old days, no, it was passed on from disciple Orally, to but orally. still the script was there. It was in basically the mind. it was yeah. basically memorized. Yeah, yeah, memorized. And it's a little bit like uh, sort of a skit in English that from a, an old movie 
by Abbott and Costello called Who's On First. Mm -hmm. And some people will know what I'm talking about, some people not. You can Google it, Who's On First. And if you see that, that's very similar to a Xiangsheng piece because it's the two performers have a sort of a set routine, but they make it sound as if it's spontaneous. It has a very clear sort of beginning and a buildup and then a climax and then an mm -hmm. ending. And those pieces can be very, very subtle and interesting. And their use, the use of language and language play and all kinds of idioms and stuff is very skillful. And if it's done right, you know, Xiangsheng can be really, really funny. The problem, Manling, is that now Xiangsheng has become influenced by TV. The traditional Xiangsheng in was a good way or in a bad, a bad way? In a bad way. In wow. a bad way. The original Xiangsheng was performed in the tea houses. Mm -hmm. So the performers had, you know, a half hour, 45 minutes in front of an audience. And so they could build a rapport and a relationship with the audience. Mm -hmm. And they could make a piece gradually, gradually build and build until the climax was just hilarious. And then, you know, end it. People were drinking tea, tea laughing, laughing, you know, and talking loud. Right. right even. So they could add a few ad libs yeah. here and there. Nowadays, crosstalk, it goes on TV. You've got to get the piece on, finish everything in 10 minutes, Less five attractive, minutes. huh? By yeah. watching it it's on not, screen. It's not as subtle. No interaction, right? Yeah, yeah less, much less interaction. And uh, But and we still we still not, have Xiangsheng uh, houses sure. there. Guodagan is one of them. Yeah, and you should, if a foreigner wants to get a sense of what the real old traditional Xiangsheng was like, you should go to mm. see Guodagang in a tea, in his mm -hmm. Douyin show, the mm -hmm. tea house. Mm -hmm. And not on TV because TV has a time limit. You've got to get it all in in ten in fifteen yeah. minutes or ten minutes, right? But you know, it's basically there. You can still see the the origins of Xiangsheng are still there in the TV shows nowadays. But I think it's lost some of the the complexity and nuance of the old traditional it's style. Going, it will be rejuvenated. But can I use this analogy by listening to your opinions on differences of Xiangsheng and stand-up comedy? It's like a writing an essay. You know, our Xiangsheng is like a, you have mm -hmm. a good beginning, the developments, arguments yeah. in the middle, and then a conclusion, mm -hmm. right? right? A well-organized essay. But while the stand-up committee is like a, some sort of um, nerdy writer writing in a stream conscious yeah. uh, <laughs> consciousness way, you know? Yes. you know? It's more stream of consciousness. Yeah, That's yeah, a good yeah, way yeah, to put yeah. it. Yeah. Good. Thank you for that. Yeah. compared to that thesis on Crosstalk. Another article written by David Moser has attracted even more attention from both local and international media. Actually, it has drawn some criticism from Chinese readers. Is Chinese the most difficult language to learn? Yeah, well, I wrote a rather infamous article entitled infamous. An infamous called Why Chinese is So Damn Hard. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, a lot of people have read it who just uh, out of sympathy, it's like it tells why Chinese for foreigners is so hard. And there's several reasons for it. Mm -hmm. And hard in comparison to the languages we usually study, most of which are in some sense related to English. And so we're more used to them. But there are several reasons why Chinese language is hard for foreigners, which I can get into if you really want to. But the main reason is the script, the Chinese characters, Hanzi. That writing system is so different from the way alphabets work. Totally two different systems. Totally, totally yes. two different systems. And what it means... That means double efforts, right? Yeah, more You remember double. the phonetic thing, and then you remember the shapes of all right. the characters. And so... Back in the old days, my day, I mean, you not only had to learn the characters, recognize them, you had to learn to write them. 
because there weren't so many computer word processors back then. Nowadays, to be quite honest, even the Chinese people are forgetting how to write the characters because they do it all on WeChat, they do it on their phone. We have machines now. Right, right. So one of the difficult things was learning to read and also write Chinese characters. And just the script system, just mastering the script system could sometimes take you many, many years. Whereas if you learn an alphabetic language, even if you're going from a language like English to, let's say, Russian, which is a different script, but it's still Cyrillic. It's basically just an alphabet. Once you learn the alphabet, you can write anything you can say, and you can say anything that you see on the page. Not so in Chinese script. It's very often you look at this new character, you have no idea how it's pronounced. And sometimes you can learn a word and say it for years and never know how it's written. But the other difficult thing is the four tones, right? Yeah, that's a legendary difficulty. (laughs) And a lot of foreigners, you know, find that to be one of the hardest parts. I never found it hard. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I'm a musical, I'm a, I'm a yeah, musician. Yeah, yeah. It's easier so I could, for you. I, I could get the tones. It was sometimes, it was very often a problem of remembering which character had which tone. Mm-hmm. But I never had trouble producing the tones. But a lot of foreigners I see today, they just never get it. Their ear just can't adapt to the tones. Do you still hold on to your infamous book, All These Opinions, that you still think that Chinese is one of the hardest <laughs> language to learn. I think so. I think even for Chinese, it's a little harder than, you know, a native English speaker learning English. And that's partly because of the script. It does take longer for a Chinese student to become fully literate in their language than it does for a speaker of English. Are you scaring people away from learning Chinese? I think you need to write a book to balance it, you know, (laughs) to write a famous book to say, see, I'm the living fossil of proof that I can learn Chinese well, right? I think... Well, look, let me me answer that, because first of all, it's worth the effort, because so few foreigners actually go through all those years that if you can speak good Chinese, it opens doors that are not open to all foreigners. And the Chinese people themselves will be very, very interested in you, because the Chinese are very happy that a foreigner will go to the effort to learn the language, because that's such a statement of interest and faith, you know, in the culture to actually do it. Um, But the other thing is, it's a challenge. It's something that when you accomplish it, you will feel like, wow, this is something that, you know, that, that is a, a quite a feat. It's not, not so an easy thing to do. And it's a challenge you, you set for yourself. And you may never get fluent, but you, at least you become conversant in the language. Is this how you persuade foreigners to pick up Chinese as a language as compared to like uh, learning Spanish and French and the European languages? Because beauty lies in the challenge, right? Yes, that's right. And then... My personal take is that um, I know a lot of foreigners who are really fascinated by Chinese language because I think in the past is that complexity is beauty. Right. But now (laughs) simplicity is beauty. (laughs) It's kind of reversed, but you can always find beauty in the complicated things that you learn. Right. And it's just uh, so rewarding, right? It's so rewarding and it's a lifelong task. And that's one of the reasons I think I was attracted as well. I said, this is something I can spend my whole life doing and never get bored with it. And this is why you refuse to leave China. Right. From our conversation, it was obvious that David loves China because the country provides something he can't live without. Boundless intellectual stimulation, such as the complexity of the Chinese language and cultural differences between China and his home country. But he jokes that the real reason for him to stay is that Chinese food tastes better than any food in the world. 
And what was the uh, strangest food you encountered when you first arrived in China? You know, I'm very adventuresome with food, so I don't mind eating you know strange things and things. Chicken that feet. Stinking tofu. Yeah. Stinking tofu doesn't. It know, smells bad, but it doesn't taste bad. That's the thing. And yeah. now you still think it smells bad? No. Well, I don't know. I'm you just changed. used to it. I'm used to it. Yeah. <laughs> used to it. <laughs> but all things like、uh, pig ear and you know intestines and fuji fei piars, you know these sorts of internal organs that we don't normally eat except in hot dogs.、Mm-hmm. Uh, I never had too much problem with that. And in fact, I have never got, as far as I know, I've never really gotten food poisoning with Chinese food. The only time I've gotten food poisoning in China has been at a foreign hotel,、wow. where they sometimes put something in the refrigerator for two days, and then it gets, you know, bacteria on it. But I've, I've, I've never had any upset stomach or something with China. I love Chinese food. I like really hot, spicy food. And my daughter does too. I mean, she loves the malatang and these sorts of things. So, in terms of food, I understand that some foreigners, you know, sort of balk at some things and say some things are really disgusting. But、mm-hmm. I don't know. I always liked the, the the variety. And you know, nowadays, back then, there wasn't much produce and vegetables available all year round. Nowadays, oh, Chinese food is unbelievable.、It's、yeah,、incredible. I want you actually to compare what you encountered and what you eat and lifestyle then and today. In, chi- in China, right? In China, yes. Yeah, of course. I was eating most of my meals were at the student cafeteria, and that's very different than even now, right? There were usually just、uh, four or five dishes.、Uh, dishes, and then you could have either a manto, a steamed bun, or rice for your staple. I liked it, okay, but the quality of the food was not so good. For example, you know, it was kind of taken care of out in sacks and things outdoors, and so it was very likely there would be sand in the food, and you、mm. had to be careful when you were chewing because strong dust, right? Yeah.、Mm. But I, I liked it okay, and I, I sort of liked eating Chinese food every day. I thought it was very good. But you know, there weren't that many restaurants because back then, you know, the restaurant not even was, McDonald's. They, no, no, they they came in like in the nineteen nineties, right? Like、Actually, the first fast food was Kentucky、KFC. Fried Chicken. Yeah, yeah in TFC yeah. in Chemin, the first one. I、yes. think that was like nineteen ninety eight or nine or something. I can't no, remember. No, ninety one something. Was it that early? I don't think so because it opened. The first branch opened when I was here, so it had to be after 1987. It might have been 1987. No, 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 1991 or two. Maybe. I bet you a hundred dollars. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bet. I remember. But anyway, nowadays, I guess the big difference between then and now is that、uh, Chinese have much more. You know, it's not just the work unit cafeteria. You know, there's so much food choice here,、uh, including Western food. It's almost surreal how amazing the food is here. The Chinese people, I mean, the reason I like it, they put so much creativity and thought into all these different cuisines. Something like a shuijuyu, which is this fish in,、mm-hmm. a, in a big pot of boiling oil, boiling, you know.、Yeah. You just, love it. I love it, and just the sheer effort that the cook has to go into with all this preparation and all this stuff, and there's so much stuff left. In the United States, I think the average cook would think, you know, you're crazy. I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna spend hours and hours fixing this thing.、It's- By the way, you know. So the Chinese food in the U.S. and Chinese food here are different, right? They are different, yeah. Okay. Do you think Chinese people can cook good Western food, or better even Western food? Are you satisfied with the、um, taste or the,、um, the, dep- the quality of the Western food that、yeah. we have here in Beijing, Shanghai? I am now, yeah. It used to be things like pizza were terrible. They didn't really know how to make it. And then fast food is just what it is. But other than a few basic dishes, you couldn't like good Italian food, good French food, good Japanese food was rare. 
now I think I'm spoiled because uh, we live in Beijing, which is a modern metropolis. I mean, everything is here and they mm -hmm. have uh, cooks, you know, even some American food, you know, barbecue, beef and all this kind of stuff is just as good as you can get in the US. Everything. Yeah, yeah. Indian food, Indian Thai, food Thailand Thai food, Thai food, food Japanese food, food yeah. Vietnamese fur, you know, yeah. all these things. You have so many to choose, right? To tell the truth, both David and I have bad memories. The first KFC restaurant in the Chinese mainland was opened in 1987, the year David first came to China. It's understandable that some memories have become blurred over time, as we have witnessed so many changes in the country over the past 30 years. But one thing I'm certain is that I could feel David's pride in being not only a witness, but also a participant in the nation's history. And I feel certain that his story with China is set to continue. I'm Man Ling. Thank you for tuning in to our program. And if you liked it and want to listen to us again, just to find us on our website, chinaplus.cri.cn and Apple Podcasts. Mm -hmm.